Bible, would you turn in your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3? Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 8. Here we see that Zephaniah is going to address specifically Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the place and where the temple would have been located. Jerusalem would have been the place of the religious center of all of Israel. Jerusalem was in many ways God's visible kingdom here on earth. Where if you were outside of Jerusalem and you wanted to see what does God's kingdom look like, you would look to Jerusalem. Well, what happens when God's visible kingdom here on earth looks no different than those pagan nations outside of Jerusalem. And that's what we're going to see, is that Jerusalem in many ways become just like the other nations. That didn't mean that every individual did not know God. In fact, we see that in chapter 2, verse 3, Zephaniah addresses the humble. He addresses those that were the remnant, those that were truly knew God and and upheld God's law and loved God and worshipped God with a pure heart. But as a whole, Jerusalem had become corrupted. It had become rebellious. uh, It it had rebelled against God. Now, what does that have to do with us this morning? Well, God's visible kingdom here on earth is the church. And that visible kingdom of the church is the gathering of the saints. And when you look at the church as a whole, the visible church, we know something to this about the visible church that we have to know is true. Is that not everyone that proclaims the name of Christ is truly of Christ. But the church itself is the humble. The church itself is the remnant. And so this would not address those that are truly the bride of Christ. But when you look at the visible church as a whole, we have to ask the question, as a whole, has it become rebellious? Does it look like the world today? Has it adopted the practices of the nations? And that's where we find Jerusalem, and I will say that in many ways that's where we have found the visible church today as well. Again, make that distinction, the invisible church, those that truly know God are humble and are the remnant and are truly worshiping God with a pure heart because of Christ by God's grace. But not all that profess the name of Christ are truly of Christ. So let us hear... This word of God, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. 
The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. This is the word of God. May he bless the reading of it. I'll have you know that in verse 1, as the city of Jerusalem, while not named, it is certainly, certainly referenced here, it begins with the word woe, which is really a, a distressing word. It's a word that we would not use today, but it is really in many ways to call down a curse. It's a very serious word, and you'll notice that in verse 5 of chapter 2, when God was addressing all of the earth outside of Jerusalem, he began that oracle against the nations that had rejected God with woe. Woe. And so when we see that he now addresses those that are to be his people, In parallel fashion, he addresses them with woe. In other words, Jerusalem now looks exactly like those other nations. And Judah, Judah, Jerusalem, will experience the very same judgment and destruction that the nations will experience. And there has to be a shocking statement. This is God's treasured people, but He is going to bring judgment upon them because they have rejected Him. And so in parallel to what He will do to the nations, He will also then do to Jerusalem. And you'll note that they are described in these terms that they are rebellious, they are defiled, and they have become oppressors. And so the city itself is defined this way. And I just want you to notice the progression. It begins with rebellion, that is rejecting God's word, rejecting God's law. That leads to their defilement. That leads to their need of cleansing, but they aren't receiving it because they're defiled. And then that ends up leading to the fact that they are now oppressors. It leads to oppression of the people. Oppression necessarily results in rebellion. Oppression is the end result of rebellion against God. They did not practice true justice, which is given and instructed 
in God's law, but rather they perverted God's law, and by perversion of God's law, injustice ensues. We have to take note of that. When we reject the practical application of God's moral law, we ourselves will in some sense become oppressors. Notice this description of them in verse 2. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord, and she does not draw near to her God. So we could divide this text, even though you see four descriptions there. It can really be divided into two categories. And the first is a rejection of God's word. And then the second category would be a rejection of God himself. So they don't listen to God's voice. They don't accept correction. That would be rejecting God's word. And then rejecting God, they don't trust God. They don't draw near to God. That's the description of them. And so when it says she listens to no voice, that is speaking of Jerusalem, she does not listen to the voice of the prophets. Now Jesus himself, when he was walking the earth, said this of Jerusalem. And Jesus really captures what this prophecy meant in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You see that repetition of that Jerusalem there is for emphasis. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And we see that perfect description here. If she doesn't listen to the voice of God, she won't listen to the voice of the prophets, which are to be the mouthpiece of God. She just won't listen to them. Rather, those voices, as Jesus says, that come to the people and give them warning and call them to repentance, call them to trust into God, they disregard it. This is a hardened, unregenerate heart that rejects God's word. This is really being going beyond just being unteachable. This is just not having ears to hear. She accepts no correction, God tells us. What does that mean? Well, when confronted with sin, when confronted with God's word, they, rather than turning and following God's word, they, they dig in. They won't accept that correction, that is, that discipline that comes from God And so when they're confronted with God's Word, not only are their ears closed to it, but they won't follow it. They reject it. They had become like an obstinate child that will take a beating, yet continues in their ways. And you've all known that child, right? That's what Jerusalem had become. They just just couldn't be corrected. In many ways, Jerusalem had become the fool of Scripture. What do I mean of the fool? You oftentimes 
see the reference of a fool in Scripture as those who do not know God. But it's a fool as the one who also rejects the word of God. We see this in Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And to look at God's word and to reject it, God himself says that is the foolish person. I didn't say it. God says it. It's his word, and he says when we reject it, when we're confronted with it, and we're not teachable to it, when we disregard it and will not allow it to graciously correct it, we are called the fool. That may not be so. Because what we have to recognize is about God's discipline upon a people is that that is God's actual patient love with a people. You look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, which indicates that you might grow weary of it, but don't. Why? Because the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The chastisement that comes through these admonitions of God's word is a matter of God showing his fatherly love to a people. But yet Jerusalem did not want that fatherly love. They wanted to reject it. They wanted to go their own way. You know, friends, let me just ask you, close to the heart, how do you respond to the corrective word of God? when the Word of God corrects you in an area, how do you respond to that? Is with a humble heart that allows God's Word to speak into our lives and change us and transform us as it's meant to do, or is it to just merely reject God's Word? We have to know something about this. Is rejecting of God's word is actually a rejection of God. And so while, again, we see four things here and they're broken up into two categories, rejection of God's word, rejection of God, we have to just see it really as one overarching theme, and it is this, it is a rejection of God. Notice what it says. She does not trust in the Lord. Jerusalem no longer trusted in God. And that's an amazing statement because all that was in their history all of the wealth that had been accumulated by Jerusalem specifically, all the nations that they had conquered, all the nations that they had been protected from, their military might and the successes of their great King David and the wealth of Solomon, where they certainly saw God's blessings upon them. Or when they go back into their history and that they were rescued from the mighty army of Pharaoh and God led them through a Red Sea in an exodus and then kept them alive in the wilderness for 40 years by raining down manna all the way until they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. God had preserved His people. With such a history as that, it's unthinkable to say, I don't trust that one who has proven himself to me over and over again. But that's where they were. And what does that mean? You see, trust is part of 
what it means to be human, isn't it? Trust is part of who we are and how we function daily. Look, you can either trust God or you trust yourself. But you will trust someone. Just a matter of where your trust is placed. They trusted themselves. They trusted their own means. They trusted their own devices. And we are warned in Scripture over and over again about misplaced trust. Jeremiah 17.5 says it really clearly, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Jeremiah really puts it and encapsulates what we're trying to get at here is this is that we will trust in something. It's just a matter in whom we trust. But there's something else significant about this passage that we have to recognize is this, is that we cannot reject God's word and think we still trust God. Actually, rejecting God's word is, is to say, I don't trust God. Whatever, we might, there might be those that say, well, I don't believe the Bible is really truly God's word. Then you don't trust that God was able to give you a revelation of himself. Or you might say, well, you know, we can't interpret this, this word, and it's hard to understand, and it's really hard to follow. You're trusting in yourself and your ability to follow God's word, you're also assuming that God has hidden himself from understanding him. You're trusting either in yourself or you're trusting in God. We can't just reject a part of God's word and say, I still trust God. But yeah, that is the tendency, isn't it? I'll trust God with this area over here But I want to hang on to this part. This part's mine, and God's not going to touch it. Well, you're not trusting in God. You're not trusting in His Word. You have then at that point rejected God. You have said, I'm autonomous from God, and I know what's best for me. That's a dangerous place to be. That's where Jerusalem was. Jerusalem as a society had become corrupt because it rejected God's word. It was directly related to their rejection of God's word. Listen, a society cannot stand apart from God's word. It will fall. Now look at this. It says of Jerusalem, she does not draw near to her God. That's an amazing statement because the temple at this point still stood, which means they still practiced worship. It means they were surrounded by all sorts of religious things, but yet they were far from God. Exactly how did this take place? Well, their worship 
involved sacrifice, their worship involved all the ordinances, but they did it with a defiled heart. Malachi captures it in eight. When you offer blind animals and sacrifices, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show your favor, says the Lord of hosts? In other words, they were not worshiping God with their heart. They were worshiping God just simply with these sacrifices that the author of Hebrews tells us can save no one. What is it that God desired of his people? It was this, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God simply wanted their heart. And the means of them drawing near may have been a sacrificial system that was pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. That might have been God's means, but they did not practice it according to God's standard. So therefore they did not practice it by faith. They did not practice their worship by faith. They had rejected God. Now think about it. In Jerusalem, they have rejected God's word. They have rejected God. But they're surrounded by religious things everywhere. They thought that by those things, they would still be okay. They thought by the surrounding of religious religiosity that they were with God and their actions did not matter. But look what happened to the city in verse 3. In verse 4, you see the officials, the judges, the prophets, and the priests are all defined here as being predators that had taken over God's holy city. The officials, those are the government, the head of the government, those are the head of the, the military. They're described as a lion. What does a lion do? It's a predator that stalks its prey and devours it, that, that hides and sneaks out and gets them. That's, that's what the officials had become like. The judges, those were the ones that had settled, were to settle legal disputes. God describes them as wolves that hunt at night, that leave nothing in uh, the morning, that just simply devour everything in their sight. Again, they're described as a predator. Ezekiel 22, verse 27 says this, Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. In other words, that's what the officials had become. The judges had become that. Well, you would think that there would then, at least because there's all these religious things, maybe the preachers were okay. Well, look at how the preachers are described. The prophets, that is God's mouthpiece. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 13 says that the prophet is the one that speaks the word of God. They're described as fickle and treacherous. What does that mean? That means they had become reckless with God's word. And Jeremiah, when he describes the false prophets, he uses that same terminology. In other words, these prophets that were supposed to be the mouthpiece of God were false prophets. That means they gave their own thoughts instead of God's thoughts. 
They gave their own opinions rather than God's opinion. So their speech had become reckless, which means they had a disdain for God's word and they were treacherous. Again, in Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-five, it says this, The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Sometimes we think and we 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 think that the idea of, of preaching so often in our culture today is this idea of entertainment. It's gaining the appeal or the approval of man rather than speaking forth God's word. And that's a that's a very real temptation for the man that stands in the pulpit or whatever it is that people preach behind today. That's a very real temptation, that appeal to, to man and to be liked by man and to be a man pleaser. But here's what God tells us about those that do that. They, by their disdain for God's word, not trusting in it, actually are like predators and destroy God's people. That's the danger of preaching. That's the danger of saying, here's God's word, I'm going to depart from it, and I'm going to give you my take on life today. That would be to destroy your life. We have to take that very seriously. We cannot mess around with that. And the priests, those were the covenant ambassadors. It says that they profaned what is holy. Now, if you look at prior to the finding of the book of the law and um, even after the finding of the book of the law in Josiah's time, remember, Zephaniah prophesied during King Josiah. When Josiah began to purge we read in 2 Kings 23, 4-20, you can read those chapters later, when he began to, to purge, you say, he, he purged these idols that were actually in the temple of God. And we see that he even purged the priests because the priests were offering sacrifices to foreign gods. They would offer a sacrifice to God and then they would sacrifice to a foreign god. Anything goes... It almost reminds you of when Paul encountered Athens where there was a God for everything there. Except for this was the priest of God, those ambassadors of the covenant. They were leading the people in treachery. It says that they did violence to the law. That means they did not teach, nor did they practice God's law, but they hated God's law. We read it back in Ezekiel 22 again. Such a poignant chapter to help us understand this. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. The same statement Zephaniah gives us is the same one 
Ezekiel gives us is that they do, have done violence to the law. They've profaned holy tent things. They've made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. They have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Again, the actions of those that were to be leading the people in worship actually led the people to hate God's law. Every element of society had become corrupt. What was supposed to be God's visible kingdom on earth, as Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple, may this temple be a light to all nations and all nations gather to it. That visible manifestation of God's kingdom on earth had looked just like the rest of the earth. You see, in contrast to that, though, our God, in verse 5, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. Now, look at the contrast here. The city as a whole had rejected God and rejected God's word. Those that were in positions of power had become oppressors. They had practiced injustice. But God himself is righteous. God himself is perfect. God is himself moral. He does know injustice. Every morning he practices justice. It's the same as every morning we experience new mercies of our God. And that his presence never ceases because it's every morning. That's the contrast between God and Jerusalem. Now the Bible declares these truths of God. But we also have to recognize that in we read of in God's word, not only do we read that the Bible tells us God is righteous, but when we look at the actions of God, what do we see? Righteousness. And because God is righteous, it means God must necessarily punish the unrighteous. Otherwise, He's not a just God. Notice what it says. This is telling us He brings forth justice, He does no injustice. If that is true of God, that means that there is going to be coming a day of judgment and justice that will take place. Now, this is an obvious contrast between Jerusalem that had rejected God, rejected God's word, and God himself. We need to pause here and note something of this idea of justice. Scripture demands justice. And Scripture gives us the means to practice justice. But it demands justice everywhere. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? God requires it of his people that they practice justice. And again, how do we practice justice? 
by following His Word. Now, there's a lot of talk today about justice. It's, it's very interesting. If, if we would have gone back maybe four years ago and I had talked about the coming social justice movement, we, we would not have known what I was talking about. But now we just we see it everywhere, that call to social justice. And the call for social justice in our society today, at its core, is actually in itself inherently unjust. Because on the one hand, this call for social justice recognizes that in society there are oppressors and that there are people that are oppressed. That's true. The Bible identifies that. There are people that can oppress and that there are people that are on the receiving end of that oppression. However, what we see today in social justice theory bases that idea of an oppressor and the oppressed on the color of your skin, upon your social standing, or other general categories. And so then, therefore, people are divided in this manner according to their social standing or according to their color of their skin, and they are defined based on those things as being either an oppressor or oppressed rather than being judged upon their actual actions and their merits. And so in other words, what has happened to today in a result to see justice as an injustice because guilt has been imputed to people that may not be guilty. And it's been imputed to them a guilt that can never, ever be atoned for. That's not justice. Be very careful when you see the posters, when you see the commercials, with the plea for justice. If it's not founded on God's Word, it's not justice. It actually is an injustice. Our society has moved away from the Word of God on all levels. And while we have people screaming for justice, they are seeking means that only provoke an injustice. May that never be of us. But why is that? I will tell you why, because if you listen to society today, you have no intrinsic value. And what do I mean by that? What have we been force-fed for the last 150 years? You are a cosmic accident through some sort of scientific process. You were not created in God's image. There is no God. You evolved from some sort of chemical explosion that took place at time. Now, if you have that as your worldview, then there is no standard of truth. It's whatever we as a society collectively come together and say, yeah, that sounds like truth. 
you see the danger of evolutionary teaching? It's amazing to me today how so many that would be professing Christians, when you ask them about the book of Genesis in the first 11 chapters of it, well, you know, it's kind of poetic and uh, it's really not meant to be taken literally. If you get rid of that worldview, you can get rid of the Bible. But that's what we've been taught. By the way, who was one of the greatest proponents of evolution? You know, one of the greatest proponents of evolutionary thought and Darwin and a promoter of Darwin was, was Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Perhaps you recognize those names. They have led, their philosophies have led to the deaths of millions upon millions. And guess what Marx did? He saw people as oppressed and oppressor. The bourgeoisie or the proletariat, as they said in the Communist Manifesto. That was communism. What's the basis of our current justice system being taught? It's based upon critical theory, which is based upon Karl Marx. And it finds its roots deeper than that. But that's what our society has embraced. But here's the warning that we must be aware of. I don't know of a single denomination that is a major mainline Protestant denomination in the United States today that has not embraced it to some degree. It's rare to not find it being taught in a major institution or seminary. Now, you just imagine in 20 years of seminary students being taught this worldview, what it's going to look like in 20 years in our pulpits here in America. What does Zephaniah warn us about these officials, about these judges, about these prophets, and about these priests? is that they did not practice justice. And when they don't practice justice, guess who will? God. If we look for some means of philosoph- or philosophical idea of establishing morality or justice outside of God's word, it will be built upon sinking sand. It will be built upon man's ideas, And man's ideas are influenced and moved rather than our ideas coming from the immovable mover and first cause of all things, God. You see, friends, we have this thing called the Bible, which gives us a law tied to the very character of God. It's called His moral law. It's called the Ten Commandments. And that law was written by God's own finger upon a stone, And it was also written on the very heart of every human being. And when we depart from it, whether as an individual, when we depart from it as families, when we depart from it as churches or a government, we descend into rebellion, defilement, and then eventually into oppression. That's exactly what we see today. Zephaniah is talking to Jerusalem, but he very well could be talking to 
the big evangelical tent in the United States today. Now, how, what do we do? Zephaniah gives us a very interesting answer of what we do. In verse 6, he says, I have cut off nations, their battlements are in ruins, I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them, their cities have become desolate, without a man, without an inhabitant. He says, I said, surely you will fear me, you will accept correction, then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. What is it that he tells us here? Zephaniah is telling Jerusalem, open your eyes to what is around you. Look at the destruction that has come upon these nations. And God says that he himself has done this. I have cut off. I have laid waste. God himself takes credit for that destruction. And he's telling Jerusalem, look. Look what's happened around you. And this was for a purpose. In verse 7, he says, Well, surely they will fear me. You will accept my correction. It reminds us of Jesus' parable, where we see, and it's a picture of God sending his prophets to the people, and what do they do? They kill him. And then he says, Well, if I send my son, they will accept him. And what do they do to the son? They kill him. So for this purpose of repentance, of turning, from trusting and receiving, of drawing near. But despite God's warning, it says in verse 7, they were all the more eager to depart from God. And God says He's going to bring this destruction upon them. He's going to bring this about. And if we begin here to question God, we have to go back to verse 5, which tells us the very character of God, that God is righteous. And so the nature of God himself means that he can never do anything but good and that he always practices true justice. And if we begin to question God and his judgment here, we're actually beginning to take up the cause of mankind over the Creator. Let me ask you this. What do we know of man? What do we know of the heart of man? Well, Jeremiah chapter 17 tells us this very clearly, very much in a, like a catechism type of way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the question. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. What God says is here, the more that he warned, the more that Jerusalem Jerusalem ran away from them. And why? Well, we don't have to wonder why. If you look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says that the intentions of man's heart was on evil all the time. That has not changed. The flood did not change the human heart. What do we see in Jesus saying? Man loves darkness, but hates the light because it exposes his sin. So friends, let me ask you, will you look around the world today? Do we see those in power trusting in God? Do we see denominations of churches trusting in God? Do we see, in society as a whole, do we see families trusting in God? 
Or could it be that as Zephaniah, we're called to look out there, and we actually, when we look outside of the comforts of our church, we actually see that God has turned over a people to their passions that had suppressed God's truth. The beauty of it, though, is we don't have to run from God as Adam did, but because of Christ, we may run to him covered in his righteousness, just as God covered Adam in clothing and allowed him to have fellowship with him. I'm going to tell you the result of this ignoring God. It's in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be cleansed or consumed. In other words, God is bringing judgment. It's coming. And I want you to notice the contrast here. Before the officials were described as lions, God now is described in terms of the lion that seizes its prey. He will pour out upon them in indignation all his burning anger. And what we have to understand about that is God is infinite. We cannot ever absorb all of his anger. That's why hell is eternity, by the way. And if all is meant, that means it cannot be absorbed in time. But the text teaches us, wait for me. And I think the warning is this, just wait for it, because it's coming. But that warning is also a call to repentance. Because we have to understand something about God's burning anger here, and the fire of his jealousy, and pouring out upon them his indignation, is, is we look around... Could it be that when we see a large-scale rejection of God's Word, that is God's call to the church to look to Him? Is that God's call to us to draw near to Him? Let's not miss our wake-up call. This was a call to people that believed they were saved. It was Jerusalem. Let me ask you this morning as you sit here. Have you trusted in Christ? Because what we learn of Christ is this. Upon the cross, all of God's anger and indignation came out upon the cross because He knew who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And if you can say that this morning, then the Father looks upon you as a heavenly Father and cares for you and has you and protects you. But if you don't know the Father through the Son, this day that's described here is one that's coming. And it's one that will not be averted. It's one that cannot be stopped. So have you trust in the one whom God sent forth to bear this indignation of the Father. Friends, let us not miss the wake-up call this morning. Let us trust 
in the Lord. Let us trust in his word. And by his grace, may we always follow it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words that you have given us here. They are truth, they, and in them is life. We thank you for your great mercy and that you call a people to repentance rather than just destroy them. We know that that's what we deserved, but by your grace, you have provided salvation. We thank you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only do we receive redemption and reconciliation with you, but that in Christ, we are preserved and will persevere. We pray your help and your continued mercy upon us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.